Next hour on most of these the same frequencies. Hello ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the program. Today we are going to talk about a rather serious topic, the future. This is Cracking the Code with Sadir Ispahani. In this episode, film producer and author Kathy Eldon tells how traveling the world with her parents gave her a global view. Once you've taken somebody out of Cedar Rapids, you can't really stuff them back in. Mm -hmm. It's very difficult to do that. But Eldon's life changed when her son, working as a journalist, visited the site of a U.S. air attack in war-torn Somalia. The survivors begged the journalist to come to the house, the villa, and record what had happened. And they got protection, but when they got there, the people were so enraged that, that they beat and stoned to death and shot the four journalists. Dan was just 22 when he died. If you love someone, you're going to suffer because always things are going to happen to people. And it's, 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 it's horrible when it's your child, but everybody has hard stuff, mm -hmm. as you so well yeah. know, but we all have hard stuff. Right. And then the question becomes, how do we deal with the hard stuff? Yeah. Eldon's response was to found Creative Visions Productions. With the ambition of using media to tell important stories, but using feature films, not mm -hmm. necessarily documentaries, not necessarily, you know, um, journalism. It was really about feature films. Now your guide for cracking the code, Sudhir Ispahani. Kathy, it's uh, wonderful to first of all see you, be in your presence. Uh, you are very inspiring from the first day I met you. I've, I feel like uh, it's, it's a privilege for me to have gotten to know you, your uh, entire leadership team. Of course, uh, your wonderful husband, Michael, and your family. Thank you for joining me today uh, as a guest on Cracking the Code. I it's such a funky it. studio, too. Yes. <laughs> I love the studio. Yes, so we, we tried to sort of move our guests around. It's great. You know, so thank you again. You've had an incredible life journey. I know I've had the privilege of hearing it, and I'd love for our audience to to hear your story and and the lessons you've learned from life. And I typically start with most of my guests always uh, trying to take them back to what childhood was like for Kathy Eldon, if you can well, just Well, think about Iowa in the yeah. 50s. You know? <laughs> very safe, very, very clean, very orderly, very predictable. But I had parents who uh, challenged me, and I'm mm. very, very grateful to that uh, for them for that. And they sent me off to take German lessons at the age of nine and French lessons at 12 and learn about the United Nations. And then when I was 16, they uh, encouraged me to apply for the American Field Service Student Exchange Program. Mm. And for some reason, I was accepted for South Africa, which was a very odd place for kids to go in those days because it was 1963. Mm. And there were riots and... Uh, Mandela was just going into jail, and it was mm. a really, really fraught time. And my parents were courageous enough to let me go to a tiny little town in the Orange Free State in the middle of South Africa yeah. called Bloemfontein. Mm. Now, they didn't realize it, but Bloemfontein probably resembled nothing more than Cedar Rapids, Iowa, which is where I've just come <laughs> from. <laughs> so it was surrounded by cornfields, uh, very safe, very predictable, very white, because all the Africans and all the, quote, colored people were hidden away mm -hmm. in um, townships, in back rooms, in houses, and they really weren't seen because mm -hmm. this was the height of apartheid. Mm -hmm. So I was privileged to go 
on the, to have this experience, but I went to an Afrikaans-speaking school. Mm. I was an experiment to see if anybody could survive six yeah. months in an Afrikaans-speaking school. And indeed, I survived. I gained 30 pounds. Mm. I gained beautiful, lifelong friends. And I also understood that you can really, truly hate what people think um, sometimes, because I really, truly did not believe that Africans should be um, that had inferior qualities and therefore should be separate. And God wanted them placed in another whole section of society. I did not believe any of this, but I really valued the people who I, I was living with and, and, and caring about. So that that's the interesting thing that mm. I learned for sure. Yeah. Fascinating. And it's quite interesting to hear. So what prompted your parents? Cedar Rapids, I've been there one too many times in my professional career. You know, we had an MCI team there that uh, when I was working uh, for MCI. So I used to fly in a lot from Denmark to Cedar Rapids, quite quite the town. Quite the with, town. Uh, with a, a lot of Quaker smell Oats. of cereal. Yeah, exactly. Yes. There's Quaker Oats, yeah. there's packing. Yeah. But an amazing town for community building. And mm. my, my parents were deeply involved in that. And my grandfather ran the community chest until mm. his premature death at 48. So it, it was but in the blood. But they had this global international yeah. view of life. How did that, I mean, I what was the catalyst wonder. for that? I think it's a good question and yeah. I, because they really were outward looking. And when I was 14, mm. we, my dad sold whatever he had to sell and we went on a tour of 11 countries wow. across. Uh, it was like the grand tour. And I was the youngest, so I was lucky because my dad started off in very impoverished circumstances and rented half of his bed. It was during the Depression, and he was mm. in college, worked in a pea-packing factory. Um, but he honestly worked his way up and was a successful investment counselor. So by the time I was 13, there was the ability to take five of us on this tour around Europe. And mm. it was every place from Russia at the time when uh, the Cold War was on. And, and Stephen Powers was, remember, he was mm. um, shot down right. in his U-2 or whatever it was, that plane. Right, right. And we were there right then. So it was a very tense moment. We were in Berlin when the wall was going up. Yeah. And we met young refugees who uh, were literally fleeing for their, their futures. I won't say for their lives, but, mm. but fleeing the closing down of Berlin. Rather like what's happening on our borders, we could say. Uh, so I had this extraordinary experience in England, and France, and Germany, and all over, 13, 11 countries. And, you know, once you've taken somebody out of Cedar Rapids, you can't really stuff them back in. Mm -hmm. It's very difficult to do that. And I think my parents were complicit. They were excited <laughs> about us having this worldview. And my brother was a globalist as well and was, went to Harvard right. and then was sent off or chose to go off to Kenya in 1960. He worked with uh, Tom Mboya on the new constitution in Kenya. Talk a little bit about your siblings. It looks like you grew up with five. There were four of us. Four um, of us. Four my of us. oldest sister who extraordinary, brilliant woman who married a psychiatrist and produced four amazing kids mm. and still lives in Iowa. My brother, John, who was an Amherst graduate in Harvard and just an incredible man who took over my father's company and then tragically died of melanoma at the age of 56, which is, he's a redhead like I am. Mm. So that's so tragic and frustrating, but, mm. but left behind a really extraordinary legacy, again, of giving back to the community and building the churches and the, uh, the museums and the, the symphony. And it just, I'm really proud of him. Mm. And then my sister who married a, a professor. And in those days, remember, you married somebody. You mm. want, you, I say to my sister married a psychiatrist. My other sister married a 
the dean of students at the University of Virginia, but we didn't have the same, we didn't anticipate mm-hmm. that we could be something ourselves. Mm-hmm. I was the youngest, so by the time I came along, it was like, okay, Kathy, you need to get a, an education degree, mm-hmm. a teaching certificate. I went to Wellesley, which was not uh, that, you know, it was a very academic environment, mm-hmm. but it was like, your husband may die. You need something to fall back on, you mm-hmm. know? Wow. So I got you know, taking fifth courses, I got an education, a, a teaching certificate, which was lucky right. because I used it right away. <laughs> and, and I have to say that teaching was one of the hardest things I've ever done. Mm. And it also equipped me to feel comfortable in situations like this. I can get in front of 7,000 people once mm-hmm. and say, okay, come, come now, you know, yeah. behave, be quiet. Right. <laughs> and right. you kind of, uh, I think those skills stay with mm. you forever. Yeah. But it's bloody difficult. <laughs> Talking about your parents, you briefly mentioned, you know, the humble circumstances your dad grew up and how he created success. Uh, a lot is said about how our roots and our core morals and values get shaped, uh, you know, and, um, with our childhood upbringing. Uh, what were some of those things that you observed from your parents? Total integrity. You know, just absolute devotion to their fellow man to God, mm-hmm. a very strong Methodists, mm-hmm. and Methodists are socially conscious. Yeah. It's a very, in a way, benign Protestant religion. Yeah. You know, it's yeah. it's uh, it's pretty simple in the sense that they don't have a lot of complicated things in the in the sanctuary. You know, there's there's a cross, and that's about it, and lovely songs. But my dad's greatest regret in his life, and I've always remembered this, is that there was a, a African American family. Mm-hmm who wanted to buy a piece of land that the church owned. And it was the doctor, you know, the chief sort of doctor at our, our hospital, St. Luke's Hospital. But the church split down the middle as to whether they wanted to sell this piece of land to this extraordinary Dr. Harris. And my father's greatest relic to his dying day was that he was the second person to stand up to advocate for it. He wasn't the first. Mm-hmm. And I, I know that now we always say that the first person is important, but the second person is actually even more important in a way or equally important. But he didn't know that. But his greatest regret was that he was not that outspoken person first. But he was, again, just a com- total community leader. And my mother and dad have their, you know, their stamp on so many of the community, again, the symphony, everything that went on in Cedar Rapids that was, I think, benefiting the community they were part of. Hmm. And it's funny because they made a big mark in a small community. And sometimes I wonder whether we're making like a little bitty mark in the world, but whether you go deep or you go wide, you know? Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. Dan grappled with this, my son, who we'll talk about later. But do you try to make, did you try to take something small and really, really shape Mm -hmm. individuals and communities? Or do you try to, yeah, it's a good question. Yeah. Well, you know, we'll we'll get to your uh, fascinating life story and all that you learned. And uh, so now you're in South Africa. Take us back to what happened after that. <laughs> South Africa, you know? oh gosh, I did learn to speak Afrikaans fluently. Okay. And I traveled the country for a couple of weeks with the other students. There were 11 other students. And they would haul me up on the stage and, and make me give speeches in Afrikaans. Mm-hmm. So again, that prepared me for a lifetime of feeling very comfortable giving speeches, especially if I didn't have to do it in Afrikaans. Mm-hmm. But I, um, it was... 1963, and I was brought back, or I came back to Boston. 
I, I landed in Boston and my, I gained 30 pounds. I couldn't fit in my shoes. I was wearing a muumu, probably, I don't know, sandals. <laughs> and my parents had arranged all these um, admissions interviews right. with Wellesley and Smith and Holyoke. And I remember arriving at Wellesley and I literally am sort of shuffling in and this <laughs> ginormous. <laughs> and I had a thick Afrikaans accent mm. because I'd spoken you know, Afrikaans or with Afrikaners for six months. I hadn't right. heard an, an American. So I know that in my interview, I, sh I should think they probably couldn't even understand me. <laughs> and so I, th I always figured I made it in on, you know, geographical distribution from Iowa, you know, looking rather diff different and then, you know, speaking with this crazy Afrikaans accent that they right. kind of had to take me. <laughs> it was different. <laughs> Don't know if I would have got in, mm -hmm. but went on to, to Wellesley and, and majored in art history, which, mm -hmm. and it was not for an esoteric or committed reason. It was, I really didn't know what to major in. And I really, I'm, I'm probably a more creative writer than an, a logical writer. Mm -hmm. And it and the, the the rooms were warm and dark, <laughs> and so I loved you. And too. I liked art, so yeah. I majored in art history and and got my teaching certificate as an art teacher, mm. but never thought I would use it because yeah. I was going to join the Peace Corps and okay. go save the world. But unfortunately, when I sent off the application, I, I I remember saying, "Please, you know, I'm redhead. I'm not very good in very hot climates." Could you possibly, you know? So they said that the posting was in Chad, which is the hottest country in the sure. world. So I literally had to write back and say, I'm terribly sorry, but I know I will die in Chad. Would you please place me somewhere else? So in the time that I had to wait, I went back to Iowa mm -hmm. and started teaching. I managed to, somebody had dropped out and I took That's over that job. Right. And But meanwhile, I was pining for a, an Englishman who I'd met a year before. Uh -huh. So at the end of the year, school year, while I was still waiting for the Peace Corps, he came and proposed. Right. And the day that I got the um, application back the, from the Peace Corps and I could have gone, he proposed. So I went to London instead oh, okay. <laughs> of joining the Peace Corps. And then what happened? Well, Mike Eldon was a dashing Englishman. And we, <laughs> I thought, wow, you know, it's swinging London. It's going to be so much fun. Well, we lived in and a teeny was... little flat in 1969. <laughs> tiny little very flat. very quaint and romantic. And it was. Yeah, we had one room about the size yeah. <laughs> in the <laughs> studio. <laughs> and it's just the way people start. And we had mm -hmm. no money. Mm -hmm. But we had, uh, you know, a great desire to do great things in the world. And Mike was posted to Africa hmm. when he was 30 in 1977. And we had a seven-year-old and a three-year-old, seven-year-old Dan and a three-year-old Amy, mm -hmm. and were shipped off to Nairobi, Kenya at a time when it was all about nation building, all about the kind of adventurous life that was going on, but it was being focused on growing this amazing country. Mm -hmm. So I landed there as a very frustrated housewife who'd lived in the suburbs in England and just like going out of my mind. Right. And Mike, with this belief that Africans should be employed in management positions, but it was a very colonialistic organization that would been right. run by a guy who'd been in from Hong Kong. Right. So Mike had a huge battle to try to bring in African managers, which he won. Mm -hmm. And I had the time of my life working with Richard Leakey, who was the uh, head of the National Museums, and his brother, who was the first white MP. And I started writing for the newspaper and editing the Kenya Airways magazine. And everything I'd ever dreamed in my life that I could ever do, I got to do in, in, in Kenya. So uh, then you decided to basically make Kenya home. and We were committed really, to Kenya. Yeah. 
And we spent... How many years was that? I was there for 11 mm-hmm. years. Right. And then sort of another circumstance arrived and I, or, or I created, and I moved to London, um, mm-hmm. actually, and brought my daughter Amy. Dan was already off to college, but Amy and I moved to London, leaving Africa and, and, and a husband behind, uh, which was very hard for all of us. Um, mm-hmm. He's a beautiful man, and he remarried, mm-hmm. wonderful Kenyan uh, executive, amazing woman, mm-hmm. and... Sometimes in life, paths just part, you, yes. you know, and, and you know in your heart what you have to do, but it's so difficult to mm-hmm. do it, and you don't want to cause pain. Mm-hmm. But in my life during that period, I definitely caused pain, and and, and I think a lar- large part of the rest of my life was trying to make up for the decisions that I made and, and make them worthwhile, make my life worth, worthwhile, mm. and, and make it matter that I did, made those choices that I made. Mm. And now you're living in uh, England. And, uh... and so I'm in London, oh, and really struggling because when you make these life decisions, sometimes mm-hmm. I, kn- I knew it wasn't going to be easy. I probably didn't know it would be quite so hard. Mm-hmm. And knew no, I really didn't know anybody after 11 years or not very many people. And right. I didn't know what I could do and I couldn't really do much. Um, Amy was with me. At th- it, it was just a really tough time. Mm-hmm. But it was during that time that I think that my whole spiritual beliefs shifted and my belief in other dimensional, you know, God, spirit, um, and how we tap into that energy mm-hmm. and how we create visions. I, I dreamed about starting a company called Creative Visions, and I knew exactly what I was going to do, which was to use the power of media to help people achieve their potential, both for themselves and the planet, is the way mm-hmm. it was described. And I somehow miraculously managed to create a production company with that name and with the ambition of using media to tell important stories, but using feature films, not mm-hmm. necessarily documentaries, not necessarily, you know, um, journalism. It was really about feature films. Mm-hmm. And I made a film on ivory poaching in 1990, which mm-hmm. was a enormously challenging thing to do and nearly killed me. But I wanted to do a book about women of vision. I'd done mm-hmm. a number of little kids' books over over time. But I wanted to do a book about women who had taken on really hard things mm-hmm. and then somehow had overcome the challenges and were women of vision and were manifesting that vision. And I actually went to my Wellesley 25th reunion. I sold the idea to one of my classmates who was with uh, Abrams Publishing Company. And it was going to be a traveling exhibit and a television show and goodness knows what all. Tragically, two weeks after that, I was getting it going. Um, there, were, my son. Uh, there was a terrible tragedy, and my son was killed. Hmm. So everything that I'd set up and was trying to do was just they're meaningless. Hmm. You know, a I wasn't capable of even contemplating it, and b it didn't seem to have any meaning anymore. Hmm. Well, you know, I know that was a very, uh, very tough time of of your life, and. If you could just share a little bit about, you know, what really happened to Dan, and of course how the um, the vision you had of creative visions is now alive, and uh, and how many people globally it's impacted. We'll come to creative in a minute, but if you can really talk of that adverse time. Yeah, well, let's start uh, with the good times, you know, yeah. and that was uh, Dan and all of us arriving in Kenya, mm. and I got to work for the local newspaper that mm. called the Nation newspaper, the largest English language newspaper. And I interviewed the most extraordinary people imaginable. They mm. were creative, they were active, they were nation building, they were fun, they were a bit cheeky. They weren't always, you know, <laughs> getting licenses or getting mm. permission for what they were doing, but they were making magic happen. Right. 
And Dan and I were, and Mike and all of us were very inspired by th by them. Dan mm -hmm. was, you know, seven, eight, nine, ten. But I used to bring him along on my interviews. And when he was in the sort of 12, 13, he started taking photographs for me and getting even more inspired by the people I interviewed. And they were of all races. Um, John Carmoli started with his wife, white wife, English wife, uh, the first multiracial school. He was mm. an Indian and there was no place for them to put their children because right. they weren't allowed into school. Right. There was um, Michael Wereque who walked across Kenya to uh, create awareness of rhino issues. Mm. There was Sir Michael Wood who started the Flying Doctors. And, you know, each one of these people left an imprint on me mm. about how you can have an idea, create a vision, and go out and make it happen. And mm. And don't let anything get in your way. You just go bloody well do it, you know. Right. So Dan was inspired. And I remember when he was about 14, he had a little girl in his class who was a scholarship student mm -hmm. living in the worst slum, um, Kibera, just around the corner from where we were. Mm -hmm. But she was, it's a really tough place. Mm -hmm. And she was going to die because she needed a heart operation. Mm -hmm. And Dan, I explained to him that there is no social services of that could save her. Mm -hmm. So he just said, okay, well, we'll just have to raise the money ourselves. Mm -hmm. So Dan and his friends raised the money required for the heart operation. Wow. And this little girl, Akiko, got the heart operation and you know, lived, which mm -hmm. was amazing. She later died because she was put into a government hospital. Mm -hmm. And the neglect there was just profound. It just broke our hearts. Mm -hmm. But he saw the power of organizing and, and selling. Mm -hmm. And when there was a family, of Maasai family, uh, where there was a sort of wonderful mother who had seven kids and a no good, very bad you know, mm -hmm. husband. So Dan sold the Maasai jewelry. And I'm wearing today a bracelet that was done by the Maasai mother, which mm -hmm. I'm wearing to this day. But he would sell the jewelry and then the mother could pay the school fees. So it mm -hmm. wasn't charity. It was like, OK, we're going to help you help yourself. Right. When he was eight, 17, he took a trip. He drove across Africa in a Land Rover with two friends. Mm. And they stumbled upon a enormous refugee camp, 15,000 people in Malawi mm -hmm. of Mozambican refugees. They had no water, you know, no wells, and it was really rugged. And so Dan came back home, and he was determined that he was going to do something to help them help themselves. Again, it wasn't just like a handout. He wanted to help them help themselves. Mm. He rounded up 14 friends and raised... Uh, $17,000. Um, all the friends had to pay their own way to Africa, but then they had this money, which they actually drove down from Kenya to South Africa with 15 kids and two Land Rovers over seven weeks and delivered the money, built two wells, and changed everybody's life forever. Wow. Absolutely. It was Chris Nolan was on the trip, who is the... Um, He's the director of Batman. Mm. Jeff Gettleman was on the trip. He is now the bureau chief for New York Times in East Asia. Uh, Ellie Tatum was on the trip. She is now the publisher of the Amsterdam News. Rocco Bellich, who is the Oscar-nominated uh, filmmaker who also did Happy, the film about right. what makes us really happy. Mm -hmm. Amy Eldon, my daughter, Turtle yeah. Tub, who is now producing the most extraordinary films and um, uh, about issues that matter, but mm. their lives were all changed during that trip. Wow, that's amazing. So he went from an individual to a family, to a, a whole refugee camp, to a mm -hmm. community. And then when he was 21, he heard about a terrible famine in Somalia. And he and a friend from Reuters went in and he took the pictures that Reuters picked up 
that literally showed the world that there was this dreadful famine. And that those photographs brought in all the other journalists, including Dan Rather and Diane Sawyer. Right. And then what happened is that the world woke up and they sent in this thing called Operation Restore Hope. Right. And those people were saved. Tens of thousands, millions probably of lives were saved as a result of Operation mm. Restore Hope. More so than impact. This was so cool for Dan. Yeah, you know, imagine right. believing that you have that power. Right. How old was he? He was 21. Wow. So he was the youngest Reuters wow. person. So he stayed on for another year just documenting what was happening in Somalia as it unfortunately swirled into a, a horrible um, spiral of, of war and corruption. And, right. And... Then the, we get to the point where he's on, literally going back. He was going to US, UCLA to study film. Mm -hmm. And that day in the morning, there was a terrible bombing by UN forces under American control of a house where they believed the warlord responsible for a lot of this was hiding. Mm -hmm. Warlord wasn't there. And the collateral damage, and I'm quoting that, unfortunately, 200 people were wounded or killed. Oh, so wow. they, the survivors begged the journalists to come to the house the villa and record what had happened but and they got protection but when they got there the people were so enraged that, that the they beat and stoned to death and shot the four journalists and it wasn't racial there were two black people and two white mm. so it wasn't about race and then was uh, in that pack of journalists he was 22 yeah mm. and so that was the end of that life for me the, mm -hmm. in the and beginning of a new life it was just I didn't want to live, but I had a 20. I had, Amy was 19, so mm. I, I couldn't die. You know, I had right. to stick around. And then, wow. then what do you do? You have to transform it because you can't survive it otherwise. For me, I couldn't survive it. Right. Wow. What a life uh, to hear of. Uh. Everybody, every single person, if you love someone, you're going to suffer because always things are going to happen to people. And it's 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 horrible when it's your child, but everybody has hard stuff, mm -hmm. as you so well yeah. know. But we all have hard stuff. Right. And then the question becomes, how do we deal with the hard stuff? Yeah. And what are the resources? So clearly, you know, Dan was observant of his life with his parents and his surroundings and everything and made a huge impact. And of course, uh, we are now sitting here many decades later, and Kathy Eldon is together with her family and many people around her has made a huge impact. Uh, <laughs> Takes and, a huge village, yes, <laughs> really. Yeah. Just a little so spark. share with us, you know, from that adversity, what brought you back from, you. The, from the depths of sorrow to the work you do at Creative Today. Tremendous yes. joy now. Early on, I, I remember at the memorial service, um, the... The suit from Reuters, the, the the head of Reuters was there, Mark Wood, and I grabbed him and I said, Mr. Wood, you know, we cannot let these lives be in vain. We, we have to do something. Right. And he said, I will do anything in my power to help. Mm -hmm. So he and the AP, the head of the Associated right. Press, Lou Bacardi at that time, immediately we did a book called Images of Conflict and then a traveling show which traveled the world and was opened mm. by, I don't know, four presidents and Dan Rather and Tom Brokaw. I mean, that was amazing. But that was like something I could put myself into. Mm -hmm. And then I got really involved in issues around journalists at risk because in those days, people didn't know that mm. there was that there was even a journalist in the middle of the news and us. And people didn't really quite understand that. Yes. So I did a lot of seminars and events around that. And we did a film called Dying to Tell the Story 
where Amy, age 22, went around the world interviewing frontline journalists to try to understand why they did what they did and what it did to them. Mm-hmm. And that actually started a documentary career. I, I had flown to L.A. because I was so devastated by Dan's death that I wanted to make a feature film about the life of, of Dan and his friends going down to Malawi, the mm-hmm. refugee camp, and also the young journalists. Mm-hmm. And arrived in in L.A. with <laughs> not knowing anybody and not really knowing how to put this thing together. So mm-hmm. I was blocked, blocked, blocked for years and years and years. But we were able to make this doc- amazing documentary that was nominated for for uh, an Emmy. Mm-hmm. And that started us on, Amy and I, uh, on a career around documentaries. And we made one about the children's peace movement in Colombia for mm-hmm. CNN. We did a, a series for, uh, for PBS about social entrepreneurs, mm-hmm. uh, you know, grassroots people. And Amy was only 26 when we did that one. She presented it. And then later we did with Oprah, we did one called Extraordinary Moms with Julia Roberts, Hillary mm. Clinton, Christiane Amanpour, and Rosie O'Donnell talking about the power of mothers mm. to change things in the world. Mm. But that was when I realized how hard it was, I really wanted to try to help other people and um, who are using their creativity, using storytelling for good. Mm-hmm. So we launched a foundation that was actually really interestingly based. My dad, who was a stockbroker, broker investment counselor in Iowa, mm-hmm. had done some sort of deal where he was going to have to pay $400,000 to the government, you mm-hmm. know, because of taxation. So instead, he created four foundations for my brothers and sisters and me. And they chose to use the money locally in Cedar Rapids or where they were living. And I chose, I was in Los, living in Los Angeles, to give grants to young filmmakers for a couple of years. And we all, you know, you spend $5,000, which yeah, is a 5%. Sure. And our accountant, our bookkeeper, said, you know, you could do more good if you really nurture those filmmakers. Right. Give them fiscal sponsorship, which means they could have the 501c3 status of our organization, and help them be successful. Don't just give them money. Right. Really help them. Tease them. So, yeah, exactly. Right. So we structured, we created the um, Creative Activist Program, mm-hmm. and we've worked with hundreds of projects and productions over the years we reckon we've touched 100 million people through the work that they're all doing in the world. And mm-hmm. then we've done, of course, our own productions. But it's been the most fulfilling and exhilarating possible work you, you, can, mm-hmm. you can imagine. And I yeah. love every minute of what I get to do. Mm-hmm. So adversity is an incredible teacher for most of us. And uh, share maybe, Kathy, how did you really make that transformation of saying, I've got to go now and and make an impact and do stuff. You were already doing that before. I was I was working as a journalist and using storytelling right. and consciously because I didn't I wasn't a political journalist. I was only dedicated to telling stories that could help people. Right. So um yeah, that didn't mean I like once wrote about Colgate was selling fluoridated toothpaste in it. <laughs> so I once did a, that kind of story. But it, mostly I was doing stories about people who were doing beautiful things and important right. things that I wanted to get other people engaged. So for me, the satisfaction and joy of what I was doing in Kenya and then not really able to do in England because it was just, you know, I was sort of stymied there. But to be able to come here and create the foundation and the organization that really nurtured all the, these other people I mean, the greatest joy you can have, I guess, is in service and and helping others. And I get every morning I get to wake up, and I don't want to sound like Pollyanna, or, 
but it's just so much fun. Mm -hmm. And especially mm -hmm. if you're able and, it, you know, at a certain point in your life, right. you know a lot of people, you right. know how to do stuff. Absolutely. And it's just, okay, if you, yeah. if you can connect that person to that person and maybe help with a few tools and resources, you don't have to do it yourself. The magic right. is being done without you. Right. Or you just light the little fire. Yeah. And so every day we get to light fires. And more recently, I mean, year, for years we were doing it one-to-one. -one. And then we created a Rock Your World, which is an educational program, mm -hmm. which is doing, we've worked with probably a million kids to teach them how to use media and the arts to tell stories that are important around human rights issues, mm -hmm. which include environmental issues. It's around the Declaration of Human Rights. Right. So that's been incredibly satisfying mm -hmm. and now more recently we're we're actually aggregating we're, we're creating coalitions of organizations and we just worked with Paul McCartney on something like who cares we had a coalition of about eight different organizations including no bullying bully no more uh, no bully uh, care international just these incredible organizations that are not always necessarily talking to each other mm -hmm. but us to try to help shine a bright light on what they're doing right and even more recently as of Two days ago, we've launched Planet 911, which is a global response to the what I think is really the Earth's last emergency call. And it is a coalition of organizations around climate change, mm. especially youth organizations. Mm -hmm. And so we're going to be helping them work together, find the sparks that are going to illuminate the darkness and amplify their voices. Because we have 10 years, you know, mm -hmm. that's it. And then we are, we're done. Mm. Well, you know, it's uh, it's incredible to hear that journey and, and the impact you've had and the one you continue to have, not just on my life, but many others. I just want to ask you a few more questions uh, as we sort of come to a wind down of this program. Where do you see Creative Visions going as the founder, chairman, as the uh, visionary behind this incredible life-impacting work that's going on? How do you Such see Such a lovely unfolding? question. You know, there is something called founder syndrome. Yeah. <laughs> founder syndrome, I think, is where people founded something and they're so excited and they're so proud right. and they cling to it for dear life. And sometimes yeah. it can just absolutely sink things. Yeah. So I have tried very hard because I know what I'm good at. I mean, I have a, like one or two things that I'm really good at. And one is recognizing talent, putting people together. Right. I can sometimes inspire people to, to believe they can do more than they probably thought they could do. Those are qualities that I know I have. Right. I'm a lousy manager. Um, I can inspire people, but I, I'm not a good manager. It's like, yeah. go forth, do whatever, you know? Yeah. And I've really, truly, with my one good quality, which is recognizing talent, have brought on an incredible team. Mm. And our CEO is second to none in the world, uh, her capabilities. And and, and I think it's exciting to, yeah, I have a vision and the vision emerges, but the vision is really about empowering people to tell stories that need to be told, to ignite action, to create awareness and ignite action. So I want, I want for as long as that's relevant, and, and I think we were a global leader in this. Mm -hmm. I'm really proud of that. And we were a global leader in, in creating social impact entertainment media. I did that film in 1990, big deal, you know, unless right. you're being relevant, it's, it's irrelevant. Right. But to believe that this organization, I don't believe organizations have to live forever. Right. And if it wraps up in three years and, and does what we want it to do, if it, if it launched Rock Your World and Rock Your World took off on its own, if it's launched you know, hundreds of filmmakers and they're all out there doing great work, 
if we continue to be relevant as a gatherer of people and as an instigator of revolutions of thought, that's wonderful. Mm-hmm. And it, make me, it would make me really happy. But I would like it to be something that, you know, they say the great leader is when the people say they've done it themselves. Then, you know, you're a great leader. So mm-hmm. for me, I'd rather have it be relevant because of the the excitement of of others, you know? Right. That's right. so... It's fascinating, you know, to to hear that. And, of course, through that, you've developed your own leadership style. You shared a little bit about... <laughs> Benign what neglect. You know what, you, <laughs> what you don't know and what you stay yeah, away from. Yeah, honestly, it's true. Yes, you know. For sure. Part of this podcast is also about um, paying it forward to the next generation yeah. of leadership. And, of course, you uh, embrace young people like I've never seen before. So what do you think the millennial generation uh, is is teaching us and teaching you and me? And, oh, yes. You know, uh, what do we have to learn from them? Because this is partly about also not just sharing our life lessons, uh, you know, they'll be there forever out for somebody to hear, but also to learn from Absolutely. what's happening with this next generation. I think I'm the luckiest person in the world because yeah. I am surrounded by young people. Right. Our CEO is, you know, older. Um but the team, the actual sort of on the ground worker bees, mm-hmm. uh, I've, all of them have come up from internships. Right. Um, we call them visionaries. We don't call them interns. Uh, and they're extraordinary. They're, mm-hmm. th- I think the thing about young people, we get jaded. Right. We get, uh, we, we feel, oh, I've done that. I tried that. I tried that so long ago. Well, stuff it. You know, a 22-year-old doesn't know it's impossible right. and doesn't know you've tried it before. And it's irrelevant if you tried it before anyway, because it, things happen when the time is ready and you're right. right. Or it, well, you're ready and the time is right. Excuse me. Yeah. Things happen when you're ready and the time is right. So it doesn't matter if you've tried it before. So just to have the energy and enthusiasm and excitement of these kids around me, and I say yeah. kids and they're, you know, <laughs> it's one of them t- today said, Kathy, I'm now... They always make me younger than I am. I'm 27 because I'm always saying she's 24. You know, there, but the energy and enthusiasm and the opportunity to try something different. And they're impatient. You know, yeah. they don't want to mess around. They're not conventional. They're not going to sit in an office for 40 years and hope to get a pension. You know, they're not going to do that. Right. And they're scared because right. they know that this is a very threatened world. And I and they're noisy, and I love that. And we're doing everything in our power to help them be noisier, whether mm-hmm. it's Parklands or the young uh, generation uh, around the environment, the, the, you know, Earth uh, Generation Earth. I think it is. It's just incredible to see what they're up to. Mm-hmm. And so every day, I, I, w- I don't think I'd bother to go in if it's all the old folks. <laughs> I mustn't tell my team that, but I go in because I get to hang out with the young people, and mm-hmm. it. It is baffling to me to think that I'm as old as I am because I'm very old, because my joy is just hanging out and being with them. Right, right. Thank you for sharing that. And a uh, couple of things, you know, uh, clearly our morals and values get uh, sort of shaped early on from childhood. How do you think and what do you think those are for you that got shaped through so many different life experiences, including the adversity that is um, yeah. that, that you had to face. You know? Well, I appreciate that because yeah. I think because I've led so many lives and, yeah. and lives where I'm not necessarily proud of all aspects of what my actions were is that I have enormous empathy and compassion mm-hmm. and I try very hard to not judge people mm. because, and of course we all do in our own way and sure. we get very grumpy about politics and a number of things, but 
to always, especially out of politics, but to <laughs> always try to understand the bigger picture of, of somebody who's doing whatever. And also, I believe in the power of redemption. Mm -hmm. I don't believe that you can walk away from somebody. And, and, and now with the internet, oh my goodness, you know, something stupid thing that somebody does, whether they're a kid or midlife or, and there's so many stupid things that we do. I don't know, I would challenge anybody in the world to say, oh, have you never done anything really that you regret? I, we all have, right. but we weren't doing it in the full view of the internet. Where literally any little comment that you might make or stupid thing you might do or turn up in the wrong is can be plastered and destroy your life. Right. And that's heartbreaking right. because human beings were infinitely fallible. Right. So I think that's one of my biggest things is I, I don't think I'd want to grow up right now because that it's tough. You right. know, it's tough to tread that very narrow line. You can try, mm -hmm. but you're somehow slippery. Yeah, yeah. Well, thank you. And, uh, you know, of course, uh, there are many things we can talk about, and I hope we continue this on another, yes, <laughs> another show. But uh, uh, I really want to, you know, ask you a few more questions. One of them is you have maintained a very busy day and a very busy lifestyle, but at the end of the day, you get to look at yourself in the mirror. Mm. Two questions. Number one is, how do you feel you did right for the day? And you've met many people along that day. And what do you hope to instill when you meet somebody for the first time? Oh, man, that's a beautiful question. I think I have such joy because our center is like a revolving door. Right. And every day, yesterday we had eight teachers who turned up and three, I don't know, social entrepreneurs and I think because of the age that I am right. and is that I can I can just be totally authentic. I right. don't have to, there's no facade. There's no, wow, you're important and I'm not. There's no, because they're all important. There's, I think I have the capacity to see into people like you do for sure. There's, I don't right. see the barriers. I don't see the stuff that kind of blocks us. Right. If you just, if it's like namaste, the God in yeah. me salutes the God in you. And let's have a good time and try to use a sense of humor. And let's get past the nonsense really quickly because we have stuff to do. So right. let's just go for it. <laughs> That's wonderful. Thank you. And uh, Straight uh, back at you. No, no, you're right. You know, it's, uh, it's being honest and transparent and viewing people in a simple way rather than a complex way. I think we made life quite complex as human beings. I believe in that. Well, if so, you realize yeah. when you're right. looking at somebody, and they yeah. may be, this is a lesson for most young people, yeah. you look at somebody, they're so important, they're older. Right. If you just imagine in your mind that that person is a, uh, you know, a seven-year-old with a runny nose, and every child, every seven-year-old just wants to be seen, heard, loved, or right. just a, seen as who he, she really is, and 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 loved, right. and that's really we don't. We're I'm the same person inside. You know, we're all these. Yeah. I you have lines and wrinkles or whatever, but it's we're, we're just yes. that the soul remains the right. soul, and we want to be loved and seen. You heard. you exude incredibly positive energy, Kathy, and uh, you're very joyful and bubbly and very endearing to people. You bring out uh, the best in me, Sudhir, that's all. <laughs> Thank you. You've also been a great advocate, a pioneer, a leader for women in leadership. 
So uh, one of the questions I have for you is, how do you see, uh, you've been a great role model too for a lot of women in leadership. So as a luminary, it makes probably me saying that you're too old, which is not true. You've got you, you, you've got a young spirit, even though your body may be old. Ancient. But uh, how do you uh, see the world of women in leadership unfolding, and what advice do you have for aspiring young women who want to be leaders? That is such a good question. I'm. <laughs> this is a tricky one because I only have women working with me. <laughs> I don't have any guys uh, at all. Uh, we've had wonderful guys, but right now we are fully uh, women-led, nice. women everything. Yeah. Um, so, and I went to women's college. Right. And I think, that, you know, going to Wellesley, Hillary was a year behind me, Clinton right. was a year behind me, Diane Sawyer was a year ahead of me. And we were just encouraged to be who we were and have the confidence in, in who we were. Right. Now, that's easy to say right. when women are, are battling and and in in America, it's still happening. It's uh, in third world countries, uh, uh, second world, you know, first world countries. It's, it's a battle. It's a struggle. Yeah. And I think to cling to who you are and 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 try to be unafraid. And that right. is so hard. It's so easy for me to say that, but it's so hard for people to do it. But it's it's a it's a long, it's a marathon. This mm -hmm. is not a sprint. I'm all. And I say I'm almost feeling sorry for white men these days, but that's a little bit too exaggerated. But I think we we will achieve uh, equity. Uh, you know, mm -hmm. um, right now, uh, you know, MIT had no women in it when I was at Wellesley. It's now over half are, mm -hmm. are, are women. Do they get the same opportunity for jobs? Who knows? Look right. at Ruth Bader Ginsburg. You know, there weren't any, almost no women in, right. in, in law school. We are making tremendous progress. Mm -hmm. So it's to just keep going. My, my dad always said, it's not the person who's brightest who, who is necessarily succeeds, but it's the most determined. Mm -hmm. So just bloody well, turn up, be determined, be noisy. Right. Right. <laughs> and if, you're, if it's really uncomfortable, find something else go go you know bat, do your battles but you do not have to stay in an abusive environment and i know sometimes that that's hard too mm -hmm. but we don't want to stay in a place that's stifling us Be, have the courage to leave mm -hmm. and you know that a lot of women are challenged in many different environments these days and uh to our young millennial women leaders uh what advice do you have to to drive hard and fast and anything else that you could you could well, I, I really there. love uh, yeah. what you're saying. Drive hard and fast. Find something that makes your heart sing. Mm. And if you're in a company that there's no joy, or if you're in a, a business, or if you're in a profession, or if you're in a whatever where you're not finding joy, it ain't mm. worth it. <laughs> you know, try to find the joy, the humor, the fun. Because life is really, we don't know how long we've got. Right. And Dan had 22 years. Mm -hmm. And if... It's really go towards what makes you feel more alive and more joyous. Mm -hmm. And I can speak to that because I've been in many situations, many, you know, work situations and where I have not been with people who gave me any joy. And and you, I think we attracted our own level. So you're creating the world that you're inhabiting. And that, again, sounds facile potentially or new age or whatever, but but we do make choices every single day of the year. And same with relationships. Right. And if something is not serving you and it's it's diminishing you, 
right. then we have to make those decisions to to, mm. to no longer be in that situation, mm. however, whatever that looks like. That's excellent Take advice. Take your power. Yes, absolutely. You know, a couple, a few more questions as we close down. You're a published author. Uh, you like writing. I've read several of your books. Thank you. Great insights. What are you currently reading, and what's sort of uh, oh, impacting brilliant. you in yeah, terms gosh. of books? You know, we've been reading about Detroit. There's a really beautiful book on Detroit that's very moving mm-hmm. about the collapse and of Detroit, and is it really, is it really rising again? Mm-hmm. That's been disturbing. I'm reading a wonderful book by Bill Bright Bryson. Bill Bryson. Yeah, yeah he's so good, yes. and it's about a house. It's it's. I think it's one of the best books I've read in a long time. Trying to struggling with the name of it, but I, I, it's about he's living in a house in England, mm-hmm. and he breaks down every room in the house, and he's telling the history of of humanity through this beautiful book on wow. the, on a house. And I'm riveted. I've just been reading about rats and rodents and <laughs> insects, and I had to skip through it. It was so disgusting. But it's 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 a riveting book, um, mm-hmm. and I would strongly advise. I'm going to send you the name yeah, of it so that you can sh- share with us. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, I've got a lot of books on my books, and my, my husband. We go to bookshops probably once a week, and right. he doesn't go to the library. He buys them. <laughs> so we're wandering through the house, and you know. Books are toppling on our heads, so yeah. Great. Excellent. <laughs> it's all good. Well, I look forward to receiving that and, uh, you know, uh, the title so we can pick up. As you know, I'm an avid reader, too. I'll send it over. Love to hear. <laughs> Actually, yeah. come over and <laughs> use our house um, tomorrow. <laughs> how do you define success? Oh, I, I know how we can define success. I, I'm going to borrow from Ralph Waldo Emerson. Yeah. And he said... Um, well, ultimately, to know that one life has li- been better because you have lived, that is success. Mm-hmm. But he ta- has a whole quote, which I will also send to you, but it's to live fully and love much and to plant and a garden and, <laughs> and to yeah. uh, it's a, it's a, listen to the sound of children. It's a whole thing that I found in Dan's wallet uh, after he was killed really? in one of his little notebook wallets, whatever. Mm-hmm. And I was so moved by it because it's it's. It's true to know that one life has been better right. because you live. That's really to be successful. Right. That's really engaging in life. And of course, you, you, you. Um, after years, many, I don't know how long it took to create the film. On Dan, you share a little bit about the film. Well, yeah, I it's mentioned earlier. Now that in 1993, yeah. I moved to LA to make a feature film. Right. It took me 23 years. So I'm saying, you know, it's not about being bright. It's about being determined. And with working with a wonderful woman director, Bronwyn Hughes, Mm -hmm. uh, we were determined to make this film. And Kwaku Mandela came on board uh, together with Marty Katz, who who produced Hotel Rwanda. And those two producers, along with Geraldine Dreyfus and fleets of people, Una Jackman, Regina Scully, amazing people, came on board to make this film mm-hmm. and it's out it's on netflix it's called the journey is the destination and i can assure you that there are very few films for which the journey was more than more of a destination than ours but it's a beautiful film and i just watched it with dan's namesake eight-year-old daniel eldon turtletaub his oh. his his nephew That's so that wonderful. was beautiful i just held him i didn't let him see the, the end of it though because it's very disturbing right. when dan is killed but you don't he said do you see dan's uncle dan's body i said no we just go up and we see his spirit taking off and it's yeah. and it's quite joyous that way, right. you know, ultimately. Mm. I believe that spirits take off. <laughs> yes, absolutely. And uh, <clears throat> the last question for you, um, 
clearly you're leaving a great legacy of, of uh, vision and leadership and impact. I'm just lives. getting going. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just starting. So, um, what do you want people to remember, Kathy Elden? My oh my goodness me! What a, I didn't read your questions <laughs> list. Obviously, <laughs> I am not prepared. Oh my goodness! I always surprise a lot of my guests that when I ask this question. Huge. <laughs> That is huge. But uh, thinking about it, I'm sure. Yeah, that's beautiful. Well, I have red hair, so I would mm -hmm. like to think oh, I, I cling to it. But I would like to think that I've been able to spark some mm. some goodness in my life. And if I've managed to spark, I'm going to cry actually. I mean, if I've managed <laughs> to light some fires in people mm. that have illuminated uh, darkness, you yeah. know, that have helped people find a way, mm. then. That will make me happy. And you know you've already done that Thank to you. many around the world. And uh, you, you'll never know how many, but, you know, you've inspired, uh, inspired many. And Kathy Eldon, founder, chairman of Creative Visions, uh, dear friend, uh, thank you for joining. You made me cry. <laughs> thank you for having me. Thank you. I well, appreciate fun. you joining Cracking the Code. And I hope you'll have many more opportunities for you to share a Just lot more. Just call me up. <laughs> Good, thank you. I appreciate it. Thanks. Sue, so dear, your visit with Kathy Eldon is another one of those special conversations about the heart and how it leads us to do big things. A common thread in most of your episodes has been how parents influenced success in both positive and negative ways. And Kathy Eldon credits her parents taking her on international trips with informing her global view. But Eldon's big contributions to the world have been largely inspired by her remarkable son, Dan. He, too, became a world traveler. Dan Eldon was just 22, working as a journalist for Reuters in 1993, when he was sent to Somalia to cover the Civil War. This was just ahead of the Battle of Mogadishu. Dan, along with his photographer and sound tech, they were both from Kenya, plus a German reporter working for the Associated Press, voluntarily went to a very dangerous location to cover the aftermath of a U.S. air attack on a home supposedly occupied by a warlord. The emotional crowd turned on the Westerners, killing all four journalists. As Kathy Olden said, nothing in her life could be the same after that. But as she also said, the question is, how do you deal with the hard stuff? She founded a film production company to tell important stories. And just judging from what I heard in this episode, Sadir, I am certain these are powerful films. <laughs> <laughs>